I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest is Gideon Jacobs. In 2016, Gideon staged a social media performance piece in which he went on a month-long virtual road trip from New York to California, using other people's photographs geotagged to his corresponding itinerary and writing fictitious captions that recounted his days spent on the road, he built an extended narrative capturing an acute feeling of self-discovery. Of course, none of it really happened. Gideon writes that the work might remind us that we don't just go places and photograph what happens, but what happens is a function of what we photograph. Gideon's work exists at the intersection of writing, art, and performance, but what connects the disparate parts of his practice is a continual preoccupation with narrative, with the ways it can seduce, inform, and mislead. This has a lot to do with photography, something that's been central to Gideon's work. He formerly served as creative director of the storied photojournalism agency Magnum Photos, and regularly contributes writing on photography to publications such as The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Vice, and Bomb Magazine. His fiction, much like the writing in Insta Road Trip 2016, is highly experimental, often manifesting in extremely short works that can be read on a single page or screen. It's through thinking about the ways we built narratives in the past, either through photography or the written word, that Jacobs finds new ways to consider how narrative functions today. Here I am with Gideon Jacobs. I acted as a kid. I don't know why you would have known that, but... No, I, I read it. You read it? Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, if you were on my website, you probably yeah. would know that. Um, it's in your bio. It's in my bio, that's true. <laughs> I, I always feel funny about like that part of my life or like how to inc- like include it in the narrative of me now. So, but anyway, this is just uh, well, we we're just talking about idiosyncrasies. So this is your idiosyncrasy. Yeah, I guess. So. How did that happen? How did you start acting? Are we recording this? Yeah, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I could tell based on your voice that like something had changed in the tenor. Uh, I'm I was seamless. Like, no, it was, it was incredible. It was incredible. Uh, how did I start acting? Um, I started acting because a talent scout was in my schoolyard mm-hmm. in the '90s when I was in elementary school, which is like kind of insane actually that that was allowed yeah you know what I mean? like just <laughs> yeah. lurking looking for a kid you want in your movie probably wouldn't happen now no uh and i think they this is the st- i mean i was too young to be like making memories at this point but mm-hmm. this story has been told to me by my parents i was like six and they asked my mom if i wanted if i would audition for some bad movie called one fine day with uh George Clooney, Michelle Pfeiffer, if you remember that bad movie. <laughs> I don't know One Fine Day, but that's pretty A-list cast. It, uh, it's it's pretty C-list movie, but with an A-list <laughs> cast. But um, yeah, the, I think I, I, my mom asked me if I wanted to audition for this movie, and I was six, so I said yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, kind of one thing led to another, and I've always sort of thought of my acting past as like a hobby that got out of hand. Yeah. Um, which is the easiest way I can describe it. Yeah. How it relates to what I do now is something I've been and who I am. It's definitely something I've been unpacking with therapists for years. <laughs> so would, how deep did it get? I mean, how, how much, how many movies did you do? It was, it was a large part of my, it was a large part of my childhood, uh-huh. which is strange. I did about 150 television commercials. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, very, I peddled lots of... That's a lot of days. I peddled lots of shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of products of 1990s capitalism have been sold to the American public by years, truly, Wait, unfortunately. What kind of products? What Do you remember one in particular? 
I actually just went to my parents' house uh, over the weekend for Passover. Mm-hmm. And I started digitizing some of the commercials off VHS because I want to potentially use them for a project. Yeah, actually, I, I'm talking to a good friend who uh, has a gallery who's into the idea of this to use them for a project. Well, how many people, how many artists have that as like their own personal archive? You know what I mean? Like it's kind of it's very specific source it, material. It's a weird archive. Yeah, um, for a lot of reasons. But maybe most notably, the 90s were fucking strange. Yeah. Hyper consumeristic, hyper commercialism, uh, just capitalism on steroids, you know, Nickelodeon global guts like in your face. (laughs) Yeah. So I I, I mean, I watched these commercials with my family over the weekend. Oscar Mayer, Campbell's Soup, Burger King multiple times, Stouffer's Mac and Cheese, you you name it, just, you know loud plastic stuff yeah insert 90s product here yeah yeah yeah. it was it's it's pretty weird but i feel very lucky that my parents are you know were financially responsible with the money i made as a kid and um that's maybe this is a good transition point away from that but that's what allowed me to like quit my job two years ago and start writing full-time wow so it really it's it's lasted this long yeah, I mean, my parents, you know, uh, weren't like, um, I don't want to throw Macaulay Culkin's parents under the bridge, but, you know, they weren't in that <laughs> you zone. Know, you know what, man? Throw them under the bridge. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, under the under the bridge? Under the bus. Uh, under sure. the bus, sorry. Yeah, they were, they, they kept it. Yeah, so my parents are, you know, both therapists, which is a whole nother conversation, but uh, they saved my money for me, and then when I was 21, my or 18 or something, my parents were like, here, this is yours now. So I, I think that afforded me a lot of flexibility to quit my job at Magnum and pursue my own work, which was really why I quit, because I loved that job. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I wanted was, to make my own work. This was something I wanted to ask, because I, mean, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but um, you went to college. Mm-hmm. When did you start working in photography? Where did that interest come from? As asked backwards, as I fell into acting, I think I fell into photography. So I came to Magnum specifically via, um, I worked at ESPN, the magazine actually in college. I was an intern there and I became really good friends with the editor in chief, mm-hmm. who is this incredible guy named Gary Honig to whom I kind of owe like my entire professional life. He became like a mentor of sorts and uh, I think we bonded a lot at the magazine because we were two of like the guys who really weren't sports nerds. We were oh, yeah. more guys who knew enough about sports to, I think, talk about sports in, in an interesting way, hopefully. Um, more of a cultural side of sports. Yeah, yeah than... which is what was cool about ESPN the magazine yeah. at the time is it wasn't really a sports mag. It yeah. was like it kind of happened to be a sports mag. It was more of a culture mag, in my opinion. So Gary uh, has, he's kind of, like uh, one of those guys, one of those New York media guys who you ask anyone like, oh, yeah, I know Gary. Mm-hmm. Like he worked with me at the Times, you know, he's one of these uh, incredible legendary media, New York media figures. Uh, and he was good friends with Alex Webb and Susan Mysalis and Gio Perez and like all these other Magnum photographers. So at a point when the company or the cooperative was in a bad way, let's say. Um, what point was that? Around 2010, 11. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I feel like a good benchmark for that is like Kodak went bankrupt in 2012. Yeah. Have you seen they're trying to do cryptocurrencies now? Are they? Yeah, you gotta, I'll send you the story. Oh, I gotta check that out. That sounds (laughs) up my alley. It's it's a scheme where they're trying to, they're they're called Kodacoins. Oh, yeah, God, they're trying a to crypto. Cri- it's super desperate. Sounds it's super a desperate. Little... Yeah. Uh, so long story short is Gary was hired as a consultant at Magnum. He just left his job at ESPN. And I think he just sort of said, hey, if I'm going to come do this, if I'm going to come like try to do some new projects and restructuring at your cooperative, I want to bring some of my own people in. Yeah. And I you was were one, one of those, those people. people. Yeah. But you did when you came in, were you immediately creative director? No, 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 absolutely not. I I started off like producing projects, sort Uh of. Magnum was uh, getting into self-publishing endeavors. Mm -hmm. I think they had ambitions to be in a time when assignment work and editorial work was sort of drying up as a source of revenue and really just as a source of going out and making work. They wanted Mm -hmm. to be their own bosses and even more so in that they could have budgets internally to go out and do a project and ideally publish it on themselves yeah. and not rely on the New York Times calling. Well, it kind of makes sense because uh, the peculiar thing about Magnum to me is that they're a news photo agency that became like more famous than the than the platforms that they're publishing on. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, uh, I mean, we could. Yeah. No, it's a really good point. Um so like, why did the, why does Magnum, which had more followers than the magazine that they're you know kind of beholden to, need the magazine? Yeah, it's like I I don't want the New York Times to show me a Magnum photograph. Like I want Magnum to show me their own pictures because they it's are really, really int- yeah they are this amazing platform. They're not like any other agency. They they almost they they have this allure this um no, the this brand art is, to them. No, yeah, uh, it's a kind of bulletproof brand you yeah know? it's like um I, I was basically so they were they were doing these new projects like uh i don't know if you are familiar with postcards from america which is one of their big old sort of self-funded self-produced projects i think i did see this but remind me what it is so basically postcards is a, a group of magnet photographers decided to experiment in working collaboratively uh, i think they i remember you know things that were thrown around was like we want to photograph like a band plays sort of um in in chorus uh around the same subject mm-hmm. or in the same place because photography is like a pretty solitary medium um, as you're probably familiar with you yeah. know you have to be like okay with a certain amount of isolation to do it for the most part especially if you're going places to make documentary work oh my god yeah. so, uh photographers i know who are conflict photographers who spend countless days alone in bizarre dangerous places are turn out to be interesting people a lot of the time uh, that, <laughs> it's an interesting breed who's drawn to that that's not surprising to me yeah, yeah, yeah it's a very particular type that can uh, do that job yeah it's very uh, macho in a, in a, in a sense oh, yeah that's a that's a whole other conversation i feel like i'm yeah I, I i was helping produce these self-publishing experiments at mm-hmm. the beginning and then i found myself sort of without so I walked into Magnum day one expecting a much more, I, I thought the office would be a little bit nicer than it is. I thought things would be a little bit more energetic than they were. <laughs> I thought um, I had a, a rosier picture of what the cooperative's daily life would be like than mm-hmm. what I found. And I think a lot of people 
considering the name and, and the brand and the history and who is on the roster, um, would be surprised at how guerrilla the operation was or, yeah. or, or disorganized or dysfunctional it was. And I, and I, I feel if any Magnum photographers were to hear me say this, they would not be offended at all because that's kind of, I think not an, even in like an industry secret, it's just sort of an understanding of that's the way the cooperative has been. But I was surprised. And I think because of the sort of dysfunction and the ennui and the general financial uh, desperation and a cultural desperation of the organization, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time as like mm -hmm. a young, bright-eyed, optimistic, energetic 20-something who liked photography and had some new ideas. So because of that, I think I was lucky enough to, after a couple of years, uh, I think they gave me a new title, which was like chief editor of digital media. I, I don't I don't really know <laughs> what that meant, but basically I was running all their social and writing their newsletter and trying to sort of, I don't know, leverage the brand in a, in a way that it hadn't been, which was cultivate the fandom of Magnum, which is something that I think they hadn't done at all. Yeah. Like they didn't have an Instagram when I got there. And I was like, guys, that's crazy. I was like, guys, we have to, we're, we have to do this. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's like a no brainer, but I think it was such a politically charged environment that uh, a no brainer like that was hard to push across the finish line. And, you know, I say politically charged because everyone in Magnum, every photographer is a shareholder. So you can sense in a, like in a way have like 65 bosses. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to get shit done. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying, I think I pushed over some no brainer ideas and that allowed me to eventually sort of hold them ransom to make me creative director in the New York office because I was going to leave at some point and they kind of dangled a nice title in front of me because I was working too hard and wanted to leave. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, did you feel like you got, what'd you get out of that experience? Which, which the Magnum experience? Well, I mean, you're, you're, how old were you and you were named creative director? I was too young to, I was, like, I was about what, 25, 26 or something. So uh, you're, a, you're 25 years old and all of a sudden you're the creative director of like this storied photo agency. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, um, in retrospect, at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is great. But I think in retrospect, and it is probably like a totally normal thing for anyone to say about a job they get young, but I was a little in over my head. And I think maybe a little too like, um, I just wanted to take over the world a little bit. That sounds that sounds way worse than I, than I mean it. I just wanted to fight the good fight there so bad. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was so much potential and we could do such cool things for such a great, cool company that had fallen upon hard times that I, yeah, I just really like dove into the deep end and didn't really think about it all that much. I think they could be such an interesting platform for like, what am I trying to say? I think I think photojournal photojournalism mm -hmm. is dying, right? Um, Photo, I mean, you say photojournalism is dying? Yeah, I really agree with you. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I, don't I, was think hoping, it's a, I was hoping you would bring that up. Oh yeah, no, I, I think photojournalism is absolutely dying, and and I don't even think it's like a controversial or surprising thing to I say. Think, I think a lot of people in the photo in Magnum would 
Well, it depends why you think it's dying. I think some people would not say it's controversial, but would uh, say it's changing, not dying. Well, that's a that's a that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, sure, I could say it's changing, um, but you know, I mean, I think the, I mean to say that the value of these individual pictures is going down, but I think that there is a cool way that Magnum can kind of orient themselves so that they're like the they're like the ones that still represent like traditional photojournalism, mm-hmm. and I think because they. They're the one agency. They're like the, you ask anyone, like, what is the photojournalist agency? It's Magnum. So I feel like since they're that one, like everyone would, everyone would look at what they put out. I think, I think you're totally right. And I think they're trying to do that. Yeah. I think it's hard to do that for so many reasons. But, but my, my big sort of, uh, the cause I championed while I was there Mm -hmm. kind of was that I, I, I wanted to, well, first of all, the big crisis at Magnum was mostly financial. Yeah. Um, I mean, the brand is uh, amazingly as powerful as ever. Yeah. And I thought that Magnum had functioned as sort of like a B2B, as in company to company, institution to institution company for so long, organization for so long, mm-hmm. when uh, its real strength was that was everything you just said, that like there are more photographers in the world than ever. There like everyone on LinkedIn says they're a photographer or wants to be a photographer and visual fluency is on the rise like never before. And so give content directly to those people. Yeah. I, I, I thought there was this huge opportunity to leverage, not collectors, not institutions, but just everyday people who really like photography. Yeah. So what that meant was a couple of things. One of which was to offer products like, you know, actual make sales to people who just like photography, but weren't going to buy $2,000 print, $5,000 print, mm-hmm. but to leverage the brand to reach people like us, you know, mm-hmm. that, and that also meant building like enormous tools of audience that you could rely on to push out content that eventually you could make money off of in sort of the way you're saying. So why did you, um, why'd you leave? Oh, it was, it was a really hard decision. Um, and I did it kind of impulsively. I think what I said in my, at the AGM, which is the annual general meeting that Magnum has once a year to sort of like, it's like the papal conclave a little bit. It was in Paris and they flew me out there, even though they knew I was leaving, which was really kind of them. I think the photographers like voted to bring me, which was, I, I will forever feel grateful for. But then I stood up in front of everyone and I was like, guys, uh, I know this is surprising because I seem to be in it for the long haul in like all of our previous conversations, but I'm leaving because I want to be more like you. Um, so this is your fault. Like I <laughs> am inspired by you guys and I want to make my own work. I don't want to help you make your work. Uh, and what, and I'm not a photographer. I don't take pictures, but what that is for me is the work that I've been doing the last two years, which is mostly writing fiction and in an editorial arena and doing some weird art projects too. What was the first thing you did when you, when you left? I started, well, the easiest, I think, point of transition for me was to start writing about photography. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, uh, while I was there, I worked with a lot of editors at places that 
you know, that I worked with because I was working with the photographers. Now I was like, hey, that same editor, can I write about for you guys as well? Actually, one of the uh, real points of that helped me transition out of working at Magnum to like being a freelance writer was Matt Lifehite, who you've had on the show before. Yeah. I worked with Matt a ton uh, while I was at Magnum. We like co-produced or, or he... Was he at Vice at the time? He was at Vice at the time. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, sorry. He was at Vice at the time. He was the photo editor at Vice. So we worked a lot together and we would have these meetings and we'd be talking about projects we're doing between our two companies. But uh, And then we'd end up talking about photography. And at one point he was like, dude, do you want to write about that for us? And I was like, yeah, definitely. Because he knew I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing like a column, a photo column for Vice for a while. Um, so that was like the first, I think consistent writing gig I had after I left Magnum. I was doing this photo column for Vice. When I was looking at your work, the line that I saw running through it consistently was your preoccupation with digital space and with reality and unreality <laughs> within that space. When, when did you start doing doing work on uh, on digital-only platforms like Instagram? When, when did yeah. you start thinking about that? I think that's a combination. Well, uh, this, is, this, this is hard. I think I'm predisposed to a certain amount of existential confusion uh, and disorientation, as, as many are. Um, Aren't we all? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's not a, that's a, I'm not special in any way uh, in that way. But I think the, the work that I make that's like in a more artsy realm, or, or even when I'm writing about photography, like what really gets me excited is when my interest in photography and art and media sort of starts to blend with my own existential confusion and I think the sort of precarious nature of truth and authenticity in general. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's sort of a blending of of my interests for sure. You can't help it. You know it's funny, like when I was uh, I read when I read your your uh review of Stephen Shore's recent mm-hmm. show, they, this was one of the things that I that I thought was interesting when I was thinking about your work. So you wrote that Stephen Shore is Instagram, and he's very active on Instagram. Super active. In a very funny way. Yeah, like, it's, it's His Instagram is very close to what the original ethos of Instagram was, which, you know, it, your word's not mine. It, it's, yeah. it's this kind of unmediated reality. You I know? think that's why he was drawn to it, yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was drawn for, for the same reasons Kim Kardashian is drawn to it. Uh, for, which, <laughs> yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure, which is which is all about unreality you know yeah. what i mean um but i i thought it was interesting that you have someone like Stephen shore using instagram in this way which is close to what the original idea for the platform was and now we've gotten so far away from that mm-hmm. and it's really all about what's not happening you know like what you're not seeing what what's yeah well unreal. i think i think consumers have become a little bit more cynical and savvy mm-hmm. um i mean i think there's an argument to be made that even when Stephen shore was like throwing up just these unmediated raw snapshots from his life, that's as we should be as skeptical of that presentation as Kim Kardashian's, you know, hyper photoshopped presentation of her life. And mm-hmm. I, you can't see this, but I'm putting life in quotes. I, I was thinking about this a lot. So maybe a project that I, I thought would be cool that, that or that uh, really maybe is relevant to this topic is I once a project that I did actually pretty soon after I quit Magnum. And maybe it's like fitting that I did it right after I quit was I went on a fake road trip on Instagram, yeah. um, which I can best explain as I would 
look for photos that were, well, I drew a route across the country, like in sort of like a fake finding myself classic American road trip. Um, but I didn't go on the road trip. Instead, I found photos that were geotagged in the town that was, I was in mm-hmm. that day. I keep using quotes on a radio show. This is, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Or finger quotes. Um, that I, so the town that I was supposedly in that day. Yeah. And then I would take the photo. I'd rip the photo from the Instagram user that posted it, pretend it was my own, and then write sort of like a fictional diary entry of sorts of being in that town and you know, living that day and how amazing and, and the, it felt and the and people <laughs> that were in it. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I was like hyper interested and, uh, and concerned and not really concerned, I guess. Cause I'm not, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I, I I'm preoccupied with the fact that, um, Instagram, you know, the more we author our lives, the blurrier the line between fact and fiction becomes and I really wanted to sort of expose just how flimsy the promise of truth on the internet is, especially on social media. Because I think people, I don't know, they, even though the, the, the promise, like if I take a picture of you right now, or sorry, if I post a picture of you on my Instagram feed, there's just like so many assumptions that like happened recently that you were in my house. There, there's just all these unspoken promises mm-hmm. That are just not real promises, you know. They're they're not pinky swears, man. They're uh, so. I guess I wanted to expose um, just how much we are, trust. Yeah, how much how much we trust. Do you think people were convinced? Well, I sort of did it tongue in cheek. I would even talk about the fact in like a maybe too meta way. Would talk about the fact that the road trip was fake with people that I met on the road trip. Yeah. It was pretty silly. So that you met on the road trip. But yeah, that my, I met on my the turn road to trip. use the air quotes that but, no one can see. But you know what? Like <laughs> people don't read, which uh-huh. is something we should also maybe talk about. And they don't um, read on Instagram. And they don't read on Instagram? Yeah. So a lot of people would just look at the photo and see it was taken somewhere else and assume I was there. Mm-hmm. So yes, some people who don't read thought I was on a real road trip. That's like that crazy. that pop quiz that every teacher gives their student, where they're like, "If you're reading these directions, you don't have to do the quiz." <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> I've never class, like, heard of that. You, you know how that never like happened that. to you? Maybe, uh, maybe no, maybe I didn't read those directions. <laughs> I just took the quiz. Yeah, you you did the quiz, man. Um, yeah, I. The other thing, you know, you said it. I don't know how cynical I am about about something like that, like the the unreality of Instagram. I guess I guess one of the things that people are cynical about when it comes to that sort of thing is it's are you really experiencing something? You know what I mean? Like what is the sure if you do a virtual road trip across the United States, are you having a road trip across the United States? Oh man, this is a really postmodern question. Uh, I think. I mean, did, like, did you have an experience doing that? I mean, it must have taken I, quite I, a bit I, of work. I clearly had an experience. I, whether it's the, I mean, this is like the question of the digital artificial age which is like was my experience going on a fake road trip any less valuable or meaningful than someone's experience actually driving across the country i think 99 percent of people would say no uh wait i don't remember how i phrased the question but most people would say it's not as valuable that's not as valuable um because you know feeling the air in the badlands or like but who's to say the lights of las vegas whatever um but I had a rich experience. I like was on Instagram like 
sorting through random people's lives and writing about my fake day. So although it's maybe it's not better or worse, it's just different. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like one of the huge fundamental questions of technology in general. It's like the Turing test. If like an AI passes the Turing test, is it does that make it human? Or? Well, it's funny. Everyone always talks about like kids now who are 12, 13 years old, who's so much of their social life is is mediated through oh, yeah. social media. And everyone always talks about it as if it's this horrible thing. But I kind of think, who's to say it's not way better than what you did? Or, you I'm, know what I mean? I'm with you, William. I, I tend to check myself whenever I feel myself being sort of like a grumpy old man and thinking kids these days are totally screwed. I remember the fact that people used to, like every grandfather ever has thought the generation before him or generation, the, the younger generation is is in trouble. Like the content has changed, but the placeholders remain the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, TV used to be the enemy. It used to rot your brain. And now if you can get your family sitting around like a really wonderfully written and produced Netflix show, that's good family time. But now your phone rots your brain, you know? So I I guess I think that I I tend to think today is never all that different than yesterday. But at the same time, like, I don't know, man, the internet is like a truly disruptive technological force and that's hard to ignore. What about your confessions project? That was a project that was like a bit of an anomaly of a project in some ways because it didn't use any words for me and that's like the where I feel most comfortable when I get to say stuff or write mm-hmm. stuff uh, but I basically I had this collaborator named Greg Hawkmuth who's a wonderful guy and really talented who I wanted to do something with the, it was actually born out of like a conversation of I was like what are you into right now and he was like I'm into phones <laughs> I was like okay and he was like what are you into right now it's like I'm into religion which is what we were kind of talking about oh, before yeah. this you turned on the mic um, and we hatched this idea to build a confessional kind of hotline mm-hmm. where you call in and uh, it basically like an automated voice says press one to confess press two to take confession and it pairs people up um, and the line is only live if both people are there and the listener is muted so, I mean, although that project is a little different than other stuff I've done, I think it was born out of a similar interest in, like, the emotions of the internet. You know, if you go on the internet, all you see is just people wanting to unburden themselves or be heard or... Yeah, so I guess we wanted to create a space where we felt like people could feel, like, the anonymity that allowed them to confess and feel safe, but also feel like the stakes of someone's listening... I am being heard. Uh, so we wanted like some catharsis via repentance, uh, which, yeah, then we ended up having a show at Delhi Gallery in Long Island City of the audio archive, which was really fun. So they're all recorded. Yeah, we tell the listeners in the beginning of the call that they're that their recordings are being saved like anonymously. So we don't, you know, if there's any information given out during, we get rid of it. And we weirdly, much to our surprise, got thousands of calls over the year. Uh, and some of them are, you know, gut wrenching. Yeah. Um, so Greg and I were like, we have to do something with this. And we went to our friend uh, Max Marshall, who runs Delhi Gallery, and he was into the project. And we had the show last uh, summer. Yeah, I mean, I I think I even 
on your website is that you kind of compare it to like a like sort of a weird kind of chat roulette you know what i mean yeah i mean there's very similar things to what we did around for sure but i think well we, i don't think it's similar to chat roulette but i guess i guess what i mean to say is i think it's interesting that online communities mm-hmm. or even certain <clears throat> actions like this is like the act of confessing yeah i feel like there are all these communities of people that that pop up they're like they're totally um allowed to exist because of the the anonymity mm-hmm. of being online you know i mean but as we've learned so much in the last couple of years the anonymity of being online is a positive and negative thing mm-hmm. um it allows for some truly horrendous behavior you mean like trolling yeah like trolling like you know um yeah i mean just all the bad parts of the internet basically yeah i, I guess we came up with this system because I mean, there are plenty of places you can vent online. Yeah. But if you vent on, if you if you unburden yourself on Craigslist, you're like pissing in the wind. You know, you're just yelling into the void. And I don't think there's any catharsis there. And if you're posting on your Facebook status, it's just, it's, it's not a safe zone. You're, you're too open. You're too vulnerable. So we wanted to create like this sort of unique space where you could feel safe, but also like know you're being heard and really hear yourself. So that's why it had to be audio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I I think people, we, we wanted to create like a service, you know, this wasn't an art project at first. It was really like, she saw it as something practical. Yeah. No, we wanted to create like a nice thing that was maybe like a art project, but that could be useful to people. And I think people did find it useful. Uh There were people who called in who were like, look, I called like this other hotline and I called like this, you know, this uh, religious hotline and I didn't feel safe on this, but you know, you're the first person I'm telling, but I'm 16 and I'm pregnant. And you know, like it really, really, uh, I, I hope, you know, that 16 year old who called in and said she was pregnant and hadn't told anyone, but this stranger on the other side of the phone, I hope that was a stepping stone in her telling who she needed to tell or, or doing, you know, to help her figure out what her pregnancy do you ever think about doing photography? I mean, I'm curious. I'm yeah, like how, yeah. I mean, how, I suppose you think about photography very abstractly, you know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I like thinking about photography a lot. And one of the, the difficult things of trying to like in an elevator sort of conversation, explain, yeah, like, well, like, what did you do? What, uh, what do you do for a living? And I used to be like, I work at Magnum photos and they'd be like, oh, you're a photographer. And I'd be like, well, no. And then, you know, I have to explain sort of that I don't take pictures. And what's funny is when I was at Magnum, uh, I always felt like it was helpful that I didn't take pictures because I didn't want to be in like literally a Magnum photographer. Mm-hmm. And I and I think it was really hard when we were hiring people. Honestly, you know, in interview, when I would interview people that we were trying to hire, if they were like sort of fanboyish or whatever, I was nervous because I, you know, you don't want like a intern or, or whatever, like asking their boss for a portfolio review. Yeah. Um, so I think I've avoided being a photographer, especially once I started working at Magnum, mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't useful. I also think different brains, different kinds of brains are good at, like, I think the kind of brain that's really good at taking pictures often isn't that good at thinking and writing about them. Yeah. And maybe that's dumb, but like, like Jeff Dyer, who I, know and love like uh he doesn't take pictures and he's i don't know i think he's one of like our 
best digesters of pictures that we have. Yeah, he's great. I just read his. I just read uh, his book. Which one was it? The ongoing moment, maybe. Or? No, is the one. Um, it's. It has white sands on the cover. I think it's called White Sands. Is it called just White Sands? I think maybe. I haven't read it, but I know what you're talking about. He, um, yeah, he's he's an awesome. I uh, I I know him a little bit, uh, and definitely he's like both a friend and like a someone I really admire. Um, What kind of stuff were you reading? I mean, when you're at Magnum and and you started thinking about all this stuff, like where where were your sources? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, we talked a bit about these like religious autobiographies and like Buddhist books. Yeah, I think. You know, I was like eating, breathing, sleeping photography. When I came home, uh, what was I reading? I mean, like I read The New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like I'm a devout New Yorker reader. Uh, I guess what I'm searching for is I'm thinking, I'm trying to find the connection between what photography is to you mm-hmm. and what these and what these projects are. Because like the proje- yeah. the projects feel, uh, I mean, they're literary. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they're in their at their core. So, I mean, do you see those things as connected? Yeah, I think I, I think I'm really interested in narrative, and I'm really interested in meaning, and the way you make meaning, like meaning itself is story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as someone who has found finding meaning in life very difficult, especially because I recognize that whenever I am finding meaning, I'm telling myself a story. You said your parents were therapists. Yeah, my parents are therapists. I, I've been in therapy. I, you know, <laughs> had a, like a minor depressive breakdown senior year of college, you know, so this is all like, uh, this all, it's all related. Come on. That's all right. That's okay. No, no, I know. It's all, it's all related. I guess, yeah, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that I'm, I'm across the board deeply interested in the power of story and like the unbelievable inherent shortcomings of story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like... But I like exploring them at the same time, if that makes sense. They're always these short pieces. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's I, the, yeah. And I do not mean to establish a hierarchy mm. between a long, big, heavy novel no, and these no, no. and these you know bits of flash fiction. Yeah. But um, it's funny because I I suppose like a, a a piece of flash fiction's the closest thing you have to like a photograph in 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 sort of a narrative form. You know, they are these kind of. They're kind of snapshots, you know. I mean, do you think about writing things things longer, or do you? What is it about that it, short it feels, form? It feels good to be like, you're like you're, yeah, you got it. Like I started writing flash fiction like pretty, like writing it very regularly, and it became sort of a very comfortable medium or or format for me because I really wanted to uh, write stories that felt like pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, I think. Images have won the day, sort of. Yeah. Uh, they can be consumed quickly, and in a climate where our metabolism for media has skyrocketed and our attention span has plummeted. So, for a long time, I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna write where people read, and people read photos." Mm. So, I've got really interested in writing stories that didn't that you don't have to scroll at all to read that you can actually read in like a single rectangle uh and that was like one project i did and and i'm i can i keep coming back to like different versions of writing complete stories that can be digested uh like a photo but i also just like don't one of my biggest uh, like not pet peeves but like uh annoying inspirations or uh is when I tell people I want to write, they generally say like fiction or nonfiction. Mm. So like, okay, I have two choices then. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I'll bite. Like 
fiction and then like short story or novel i'm like oh i've so now i've two categories and now two subcategories yeah and those are my options and i'm just like holy shit this thing that is writing can like be broken down into like that's it those are my choices and i i guess i i want to just constantly push back on that for a lot of reasons one of which is that i don't i look at my peers and i don't think they read novels like of past generations I also just think the novel seems to be like a pretty arbitrary format. Well, it wasn't always popular, right? I mean, isn't that the thing? The like novels weren't. I mean, a no- novel. I mean, catch, get your head out of a book, you know, or you know, like novels used to be. I think more pulpy. Pulpy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I I think it's a much more flexible thing writing and fiction than people often treat it. So I'm. I just my my greatest ambition. Yeah, I'll write a novel. That sounds cool. I don't know how I do it. It sounds really hard. <laughs> I don't have a very high attention span. And I think I'd like to try to write a novel uh, one day soon. But I am much more like philosophically interested in like getting out of the, the what feel like arbitrary confines of fiction and writing mm-hmm. uh, on a regular basis. And there's actually a book on that table that I just picked that I just bought because I was like, this sounds so bizarre. But this guy... Joe McNaughton or someone recommended it to me wrote this book called uh, Letters to Wendy's which is like each page is a um, like a suggestion card at a local Wendy's but it's so weird it's like such a weird book it sounds this sounds up your alley yeah it's like something I'd want to do well I just think I just want to I think if you're making I think if you're making anything if you're taking something out of your head and putting it into the world, you inherently, like, I don't believe people when they say they write for themselves. Mm-hmm. I know, maybe it's not that I don't believe people, that's not fair. I just don't relate to it. I, if I take something out of my brain and put it into a story or put it into words, I've turned it into communication. Yeah. And communication is inherently a two way street or, uh, to, to it takes two to tango, let's say. So you feel like you have an audience in mind. I'm writing for people. Mm-hmm. I I don't have an audience in mind necessarily, but maybe and maybe you know maybe that's like the good connector to my acting weird life that I don't know how to like sort of make sense of. Um, but I do think I'm an audience oriented writer. So I think part of why I haven't written a novel is not just that it's hard, but I'm afraid people won't listen mm-hmm. and I want to write where people read and listen um, yeah and in doing these short things people really can I mean they can they can read everything you, you, you've written like relatively quickly it's, like it's, the, it's very accessible it's like the most the safest way to make sure or hope that people might actually read your story yeah I mean I see that I see that reflected in art as well you know I mean I think that um, even if even if a show goes up and it's and it's widely reviewed and it's in a, a very visible place it's an institution Mm -hmm. the number of people that can really engage with it like and actually understand what's going on um it's so low it's it's low and also it's uh it's very like niche you know it's like um i don't want to just write for like mfa grads well mfa writing is such a that that writing that feels like mfa writing is a big thing I, i have no interest in like, I don't want to write for people who like call themselves readers. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like, 
I did the quotes thing again, man. Maybe I do that a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I also when I when I say that I write short stuff when and I have been writing short stuff, I want to qualify it by saying that like I recognize I'm sort of feeding a junk foodie part of people's brains. Mm-hmm. Like maybe people should have like maybe I shouldn't give people fodder for lowering their attention spans even further. Right. Uh, and maybe I should fight the fight and be like, no, sit down with like a novel and like think about it. And challenge someone. Yeah, maybe I should challenge people. But uh, part of me feels like that's not really. I don't have like much interest in that fight. Well, it's it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's it's it's. I think your natural reaction is to be like, it's better to struggle with a long form piece of media mm-hmm. you know it's better to have to sit and watch something uh, look how i revert to always saying no, watch something totally. to, it's 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 better to have to sit and and read a long russian novel than to consume something in in five minutes but that you know it's like we were, what we were talking about earlier with kids and social reactions yeah, is that a biased like opinion it, it yeah. might not be the case you know you yeah. might be able to get more it might just be a more efficient thing yes i i totally agree and i think that there's ways to deliver stories and content that is, you know, you can take something super, I don't think people want less. I think they want just as much, but quicker. Yeah. So, you know, you'll take crime and punishment and just package it differently. Mm-hmm. If it's possible. If So that's, that's, what, that's the other thing I was going to say is like, but that's a genuine question. It's a genuine question, but, but maybe, you know, I think like the sort of devil's advocate and like, I can hear this part of my brain saying, some things take time mm-hmm. and some things take stillness and take, you know, these things that the trajectory of media don't really favor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of go back and forth. Uh, it, you know, there is like this great attention arms race going on that really makes it hard to even find out whether writing the great Russian novel is like a good idea. Gideon, thank you so much. That was so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. Thank you to Gideon Jacobs and also to Matthew Lifehite. This show is produced by Sarah Levine and our music is by Jack and Eliza. Remember, you can see my portrait of Gideon at home in Ridgewood, Queens on Instagram at William Jess Laird and online at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. If you like the show, help us grow by leaving a review, a rating, or by sharing it with a friend. Thanks, and see you next week.